Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider podcast. And our guest today is Dr. Gavril Schneider. Dr. Schneider is an acknowledged leader in the field of human-based risk management and the psychology of risk. He is a serial entrepreneur and has been running his own business since 2001. He has conducted business in over 17 countries and provided a wide range of services for a diverse client base ranging from heads of state to school teachers. He is a leading academic in his field and is much sought after as an international speaker and is a subject matter expert in security risk management amongst other things. Gav, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. So, okay. Let's start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your area of expertise. How did you get into this? So I started my career originally with martial arts. Then, as you can hear from my accent, I grew up in South Africa. Uh, Started working as a professional bodyguard or close protection specialist. And found at a certain point in my career, the frontline stuff was amazing. But to grow my own business and grow my own brand... Having never formally served in the police or military, I started focusing on the academic side of things and was the first guy in Africa to get a master's in security risk and the first to get a PhD later on. Uh, The businesses we've built now are actually businesses that focus holistically across all aspects of risk. So we've got our security consulting and training division, but we also have a safety consulting business and training business, a medical and health business a risk consulting and risk integration business, and we've just purchased a technology access control CCTV duress business. So my passion really is attuned to our corporate vision, which is protecting what counts, and that's protecting what counts for, you know, whichever client we tend to service, but also for our stakeholders that are engaged. And so clearly amongst all of those businesses, protecting what counts does not include your own personal life and time, because when do you find time to do anything other than work? I think everyone listening to this podcast can identify with that to some degree, though. Um, Okay, so your academic sphere and what you do in the academic space. Tell us a little bit about the the psychology of risk as you teach it. Sure, thanks, John. So we were really fortunate, um, and it's been a good evolution for me. uh, While my master's degree looked specifically at the field I was working on at the time, which is close protection, my PhD looked at high-consequence decision-making primarily related to use of force and training, which got me really interested in how do we make decisions, why do we make decisions, and how do organizations make decisions collectively? Because if we were so good at it, why do we see so many startup businesses fail, for example? Or why do we see so many big businesses do things so slowly and so ineffectively and efficiently that we kind of go, what's the point? Uh, So five years ago, we got the contract with Australian Catholic Uni's Executive Education Department to redo and revamp their postgraduate certificate in the psychology of risk. Um, Next year will be our fifth year of running the program. And it's really a process now of trying to train people on the skills, capabilities and tools needed to make great decisions for themselves, how to influence and lead others in the process of great decision making and then try and get an organizational approach to great decision-making, which is really risk management. Yep. Because decision-making science has, over the last few years, become a science all of its own. And there has been a lot of changes in the field of risk management and the thinking around risk management. How have you seen those two disparate fields come together and change? Sure. So I think part of what we've seen is that as we move from this industrial age thinking into what's now being referred to as the fourth industrial revolution, 
which is the input of artificial intelligence and automation into everyday life. The, the, the previous models we had, which were centered around the process and the system being more important than the person and people simply being cogs that we plug in or plug out and not being that important is shifting because any of those processes that can get automated will get automated eventually. And AI is already able to sort through data quicker than humans can and cluster it more effectively. Just, you know, just look at a search function on a computer. Mm. So part of what we need to do is we need to train our leaders of today, because they are leading right now, how to effectively manage this transition. So from a risk perspective, this is a shift from process-based risk management. And if we're talking about security risk, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting specific field. Uh, I, I, I think security risk managers and security risk experts are some of the most underrated practitioners in the world simply because to be a security risk expert, you have to understand risk and security. You've got two interbred um, aspects, but the second piece is that by definition, security is the prevention of an intentful act where safety is usually accidental. So when I'm looking at something intentful, I have to understand people. So we often find highly experienced security practitioners are people experts too. It's just we tend to be branded as the negative people experts. We're always worried about you know, who's going to steal from us, who's going to assault somebody, who's going to attack, who's going to do X, Y, or Z that's unpalatable. The mission now is to also be looking at opportunity. You know, risk itself, the term is not, uh, non, non-descriptive, right? It doesn't actually lean to positive or negative. ISO defines it as the effect of uncertainty on objectives. There's nothing that says it's bad or good. We've just made it a negatively framed thing. Yep. And I think you know, we don't innovate without taking chances. So if we want to be innovative, we have to look at how we manage opportunity, not just threat or potential harm. So that's probably the big shift. I think the other big shift, again, is the balancing of how we invest in people to make great decisions and act. You know, the old, even if we take it back to security on a frontline basis, the, the old see something, say something. Yeah. That model was really good when the process was robust enough to ensure first responders would be there in time. Now, I go back to that recent incident in Sydney where um, the bystanders pinned that guy down with a crate. Yep. We're actually now in a, an aspect of life where the first responders can't be there in time. We just don't have enough of them. Yeah. So the model actually has to change to a see something, say something, do something yeah. model, which is very difficult with conventional risk management. Conventional risk management is not about empowering the front line to do things. This is, the, this is where we're going. We have to actually change that. So based on changes in risk management, risk thought process and everything else that you've seen occurring over the last few years, where do you believe that security managers and risk managers are currently getting it right and where are they getting it wrong? So I, I think there's a, and this is one of the core frustrations and one of the topics we're going to talk about today, you know, the, 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 some of the work we've been doing with ASIL around setting the strategy for ASIL and the Australian security industry as a whole is actually not necessarily a bad comparison for this example. So part of, the, part of the challenge is Australia itself is a comparatively very safe, great place to live. Yeah. And for the last you know, 28 years, according to Prime Minister Scott Morrison, we've had continuous economic growth. As a result of that, we've got people in the workplace who've never known any hardship at all, yeah. which is one of those underpinning pieces of the psychology of risk that we can't focus, if you think of a Maslow's hierarchy, you can't focus just on the top stuff because when something goes wrong at the bottom, 
in other words, our safety or psychological or sociological or survival needs are not met, we break. So we can't just keep going saying, oh, life's great. You know, there's no issues. And particularly from a security perspective, where we would have gone, oh, the police must deal with that or a private security company must deal with that. I need to actually build that capability myself. So I think some of the things we've done really well in Australia hinge on the systemization processes and standards and guidance capabilities we've developed. I think, you know, even looking at the federal government's protective security policy framework, it's, a, it's probably world-class and leading in some of the way it's evolved. Sure, it's a work in progress, but it's so far ahead of many other countries. Yeah. yeah we've done really well on the process and the system side. You know, any organization who works in the security industry understands the need for policies, procedures, systems, SOPs. We, we've got that part down. Uh, what we haven't really got down is looking at how do we actually solve the problem. And I'll give you a simple example on that. In the security industry, we tend to try and fit square pegs into round holes all the time. So if there's a problem and I'm a CCTV salesperson, CCTV is the answer for everything. Right. If I sell guards, guards are the answer for everything. We've moved past that a little where we've got you know, these, these unique beasts now which we call integrators or combined security solutions providers. But they're still not necessarily looking to solve the problem. They're looking to plug products in that will manage the risk. Yep. So one of the things I think we have to do with the security sector is we actually have to start growing our leaders within the sector to be smarter in the way we actually look at solving problems and making sure that we solve the right problem. And there's a two-way perspective to that. In, in the modern world that we live in, a lot of the risks we have are based on the lowest level frontline response. So I'll give you an example. A security guard in a building, uh, they're rude to somebody. Yep. Now all of a sudden there's organizational branding and it's your client's organizational branding, not even just your security company's branding that's at stake. So the lowest level common denominator in your business could have massive impact. What we don't do is invest in those people to build robust, rounded life skills. Even if we look at the security guard training packages, we, we, we've got this fundamental failure where we think more training and longer training equals a better output, as opposed to actually looking at what are the critical life skills we want security guards to focus on. Things like communication capability, ticking off a competency checklist and saying somebody's done 10 hours is not relevant for everybody. Yeah. yeah. And some of the things we're missing, if we look at how this was done in the old days, and I did a lot of research on this when I did my PhD, prior to mandated training hours and licensing, many security guards, and crowd control is a great example to work on, learned in a mentoring approach. I started the job, I didn't know what to do, I looked at somebody else and I learned what they did and they showed me how to do the job. Yep. Now we've got an assumption that you go and do a two-week or three-week course, and because it's mandated, I arrive ready, uh, which is an inaccurate uh, reflection of where we need to be. So I think career pathing, the way people move through the security industry, is an area we can focus on a lot more. One of the challenges with doing that, though, is we had a system a number of years ago in some of the states where we had probationary security licenses that were designed to tackle exactly that. It was that, Gav, you would come to me, you would do your security license, you wouldn't be issued a full security license, you would be issued a probationary security license, you would then go out on the job, and I, as your employer, would be expected to provide you with a certain level of mentoring and guidance. 
The challenge with that from a purely commercial point of view is that that now doubles the resources, the on costs and everything else that I have to have because I can't just put a person in a role to fulfill a job. I have to have, say, where I might need two guards, I have to have three. I have the two junior guards and I have the senior guard, which increases the impost on my organisation significantly. So how do we balance that out? Because we have to be realistic about how we're going to achieve this. We can say, look, in the wonderful world of unicorns and lollipops, we can do these things. But when we're facing the cold, hard realities of commercial, competitive, financial imperatives, how do I actually make that work? Uh, excellent point. And it actually raises the next piece that I think we have to focus on in the security sector. And that's actually accepting the professional approach to the sector, but also driving client education. So one of the challenges we've got is, and, and whether it's electronic security, cyber security, or guards, if the process is continuously price-driven and it's a race to the bottom, then we're all doomed. Yeah. And, and I agree with you, and sorry to jump sure. in there, but... I don't think anyone in the industry would disagree with you. What we have, though, it appears in this industry, and we did a series of podcasts for anyone listening to this um, back earlier in the Insider series where we looked at the whole procurement process and spoke to a number of people. We have a, a serious and significant disconnect in the security industry where within major organisations you have the security manager who is responsible for overseeing and delivering the security function. But then you have procurement departments that are responsible for overseeing and delivering the cost of the security function. And where you will have a security manager saying, I want company A because I believe they are in the best position to deliver all of our outcomes and mitigate our risk. You have the procurement department sitting over here saying, bad luck, we're going with company B because at the end of the day, and there are going to be people who will listen to this that may or may not throw things at me, and this is why we don't do this on YouTube, because I can't be bothered with the comments at the bottom of the page. Um, but there are going to be people out there who may disagree with this, but the reality is we have boards of directors that report to companies that drive dividends for shareholders, and that is king. All that matters at the end of the day in a lot of organisations are did we make our shareholder dividend this year because the board of directors want their bonus, which means we have to either deliver the same service for the same fixed cost base or we have to decrease the cost of our service to meet profit, right? We can only do one of those two things. And that often means I need to shave points off on the margin for security. I will cut costs or I will increase revenue or, or in most cases, I'm going to do both. I'm going to cut costs and increase revenue. One of the easiest ways I can increase revenue is by cutting costs in security. So how do we get around this whole thing of I as the security manager want service A, but our procurement department wants service B? Because we're preaching to the choir here. Most of these security managers get what you're saying. So there's a couple of points that I, that I want to focus on there. Yep. I, I want to add to that though. Yep. The challenge we've got in the security industry, because the, what you described is not different to any other sector or challenge, you know, I want to yep. build something, procurement wants me to buy the cheapest possible product at the best possible price yep. to do that. And, you know, there's there's so many, uh, in some of the strategy work we've been doing with AZL, a lot of what we have to do is change the way we talk about the sector because people go, oh, the security guarding industry or the security in industry is shonky. So, so is the building industry. Yep. You know, so are other sectors. The challenge we've got is if we do our job right, 
nothing goes wrong. Yep. So how do you measure we're doing our job right when the output is an intangible? Yep. Then there's the additional part on that where people go, well, if nothing's happening, then I don't need you because nothing went wrong. Yep. And because I can't measure that you did your job right in the first place, which stopped things happening, yep. it's hard to attribute a value to security. Yeah. The second big challenge, particularly in Australia compared to many of the other countries I've worked in, is we are comparatively low risk uh, on the first side. The second side is that we've got this perception that other people will do it for us. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, if people are going to steal from me, that's a police issue. So I don't need security. Yeah. Um, you know, if it's cyber security, oh, I've, I've bought, you know, Microsoft virus protection. I shouldn't have to worry about that. Yeah. Cameras, oh, I've got them up. Who's monitoring them? Oh, no, I don't have to worry about that. There's, there's a, a, a lack of ownership based on this three decades of comparative economic growth that's not relevant in a lot of other countries. So it's harder in Australia than it probably is in many other places. So this disjoint between procurement and security to tackle the problem head on is something that we have to, that we have to work on via education. Yep. We, we, we'll never solve the problem by continuously complaining about it. So I think there's a few angles. Angle one, the more professional all role players in the industry get, the more likely we are to see us treated as professionals. So for example, if you see a tender that goes through procurement for legal services, there are minimum benchmarks and expectations about what legal practitioners need to be able to provide. Yeah. In the security industry, we're not really judged in the same level. That's one of the challenges we've got. How do we do that? I think there's a few things that we collectively need to work on. First one is we need to stop just saying it's just the security industry. Yeah. We need to stop bad-mouthing our own sector. Second thing is we need to keep growing the people in the sector. So do you think that happens, though? Do you think the industry bad-mouths itself? I, th- I think in many cases there's not necessarily the derogatory terminology, but there's the it's just security. Really? Yeah. Okay. Which, which if you look at the way the rest of the organization, procurement, finance, would look at that, they go, yeah, it's just security. Mm. If we shave a few points off that, we're fine. Yeah. So the more important, the more profiled the sector gets, the less likely we are to have to shave off these margin pieces, the more likely we are to have experts sitting on procurement panels to influence those procurement panels. Yep. Which is, which is a, a long journey to go on, but that's the only way we're going to make it work. Well, I have an alternative solution. I think we get all the people from the procurement panels and we have a team building day and we take them up in a small plane and we go skydiving and we say on the left side of the plane we have all the cheapest parachutes. On the right side of the plane we have all the quality parachutes. Do you want the cheapest or do you want the best? And let's see which they pick in a practical situation. Let's teach them that cheapest isn't always necessarily the best. I I love that analogy. I think it's awesome. I think part of the challenge we've also got too and I... One of the missions that, you know, out of the strategy days we've been doing with ASIL is trying to drive cohesion across the security industry as a whole. Yeah. Because, you know, just as a simplistic example, and I'm not picking on our information security colleagues, but why does a physical security consultant need to be licensed, but an information security consultant doesn't have to be licensed? We're both protecting things, particularly yeah. when we look at frameworks like the Protect Security Policy Framework, which looks at, you know, information security, physical security, personnel security, and governance. Um, we, we need to try and level the playing field, which is getting harder and harder to do. You know, if I want to put up a camera, I need to, if I'm doing it for security purposes, technically I need to be a licensed installer, but I can just go to Bunnings and buy one, put one up myself anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the, 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 the problems themselves... Not, not that we encourage that. <laughs> well, the, the risks then, are, are you putting it in the right place? Have you bought the right camera? Yep. And is it actually going to be fit for purpose for what you wanted to do? Yeah. And I think part of the challenge we've got as a sector is we're evolving. We're moving, and many sectors are going through this. They get disrupted. We're moving to a stage where people will more and more need to take responsibility themselves and less and less be able to go to the so-called experts, whether it's a guarding company, whether it's an electronic security company, or whether it's just a consultant. People are trying to take the power back. Yeah. Because we're used to that now. You know, I buy something online, I want it here tomorrow. Yeah. So instead of fighting it, kicking and screaming, what we've got to do is accept the fact that the more we can educate the, whoever it is about what proper security is, the more effective it'll be for the industry in that the average user will come to us when they really need help or they really need understanding. Number one. Number two, in terms of response to real attacks or real issues like terrorist attacks, we're going to have an engaged public that observes, reports and acts and the security sector will continue to grow regardless because if we look at global trends, uh, law enforcement structures that, co that traditionally took responsibility for many things like community patrols just don't have the resources to patrol everywhere anymore. Yeah. So we'll see these things coming to the private security industry in Australia like they have in other countries, which we haven't had before. So you know, people in the security industry that are worried that by hanging on to the past – it's the only way they're going to survive. They need to change the thinking. They well, I mean, we've, we've seen in, in a multitude of industries over decades, we know the, the age-old axiom that the past performance is no predictor of future success. You, just because something made you successful five years ago, it doesn't mean it's going to make you successful five years from now. In fact, more often than not, the disruptors that come along find those patterns of behaviour and then find ways to turn them on their heads are going to be the ones that are going to be the most successful. Agree 100%. So I think we have to uh, shut down a few fallacies straight away. So the first fallacy is that technology will replace manpower. Yep. Yeah, that's never going to happen, right? We will always need thinking-capable, observing people. What we need to do is look at how technology can augment manpower and make it more effective and how manpower can work with technology to make itself more effective. Yep. Yeah, so that's, it's, a, it's a fundamental change in thought. The second fallacy we have to tackle is that technology is the solution for every problem. Yeah. Yeah, as we move into what's referred to as a volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world, VUCA, which is a term coined by the US Army in the late 1990s, we need to focus more on understanding that it's the intersection between human interaction and technology that we'll see an output. And I'll just give you a very simplistic example. Simply crowd controllers wearing body cams has shown us that we're able to reduce the risk for crowd controllers and the public tremendously. Yeah. So it's just one little piece you know, that, that's already shown significant benefit. As we get better and more evolved AI, for example, we know that people sitting in control and monitoring centers who are potentially flooded with too many cameras to look at anyway, will start getting uh, analytics and behavioral recognition tools that will do the job for them. So the time that they'll have to engage will be a critical time where you now need a human response to verify. So I actually think one of the, the best parts about where we're going is we're actually going to see an improvement in the way humans are used to keep assets, people, information safe. But that's not going to happen if we keep reverting back to what worked 5, 10 or 15 years ago. No. 
And I think you're seeing that now in, if you look at a lot of the large global organisations that are highly successful, like Google, Facebook, Twitter, um, and so on, the list of requirements in what they're looking for in people has changed significantly. So a lot of the old skills, being able to memorise information, being able to have good manual dexterity to execute tasks, being able to um, you know look at pattern recognition and those sorts of things, those skills, they're gone. We know that computers are way better at those than people are. The new skills that a lot of these organisations are looking for now, the skills of the 22nd century, are going to be things like emotional intelligence, uh, social intelligence, being able to problem solve, being able to work in teams, being able to collaborate, being able to be autonomous. And they're the same sorts of skills that really we should be looking for in the security industry because, you know, being able to remember, you know, in Victoria, for example, Section 462A of the Crimes Act verbatim. I mean, seriously, whatever, who cares? Stick it on your smartphone. You can have it there anytime you want. Being able to act with emotional intelligence in a situation where you need to diffuse something or being able to work in a team or being able to problem solve, these are far more important skills. The challenge is, though, how do we attract those kinds of people to this industry? Because the reality is, up until now, and again, I'm now guilty of regurgitating information that's 20 years old, but it's still a legacy problem for this industry to some degree. The security industry has, for the longest time, been seen as a last refuge for the unemployable. We need to change that public perception. So th there's a few challenges with that, and some of what we'll talk about is probably not that popular, but yep. it's, you know, that doesn't make it any less true. Being popular has never been something I've been too worried about. Don't worry about that. So I, I want to tackle the first part about the skill sets you discussed, and then we'll move on to how do we attract people with the right skill sets and how do we build them. So in summary, the postgraduate program we run on the psychology of risk is actually a translation course for leaders who were used to thinking in the old systems process and how to thrive and act in the new processes, in the new systems we're adopting. The outcome of it is that you get a toolbox and a suite of tools that enable you to hack the system so that you can start looking at building more networked approaches that capitalize on those skill sets. The problem we've got is you know, the, the, the generations in the workforce now are this mix of new and old. And we see, we see this competitive tension. Yep. So you've got your old and bolds who go, oh, hold on a second, I don't even want to use e something as simple as email, yep. ne never mind a GPS tracking app and a, li and a live uh, monitoring tool and all these other things. And then you've got the new generations coming and going, why should I walk a patrol? Yeah. You know, I'll just, just put up a camera, let me watch, my, watch it on my phone. We've got robots that can do patrols now. Why do I need to do that? Absolutely. So there's a, we're in this awkward place of somewhere in the middle where there's literally no rule book that tells us exactly how to play. So linking back to a few things. Uh, it's a, the let's get to the unpopular part. So decisions have been made, for example, uh, that, we w that we can't give security licenses to people who are here on uh, part-time student visas. Mm -hmm. yeah, but those are the people who are at university studying to develop the skills and the capabilities and the thinking that you just described. Right. Okay, which again forces us to have a, the, the only option then is to pick from the lowest common denominator pool. We've made training mandatory two or three weeks. So now I've got somebody who's really good at solving problems and great at customer service who has to train for three weeks or they can go do a one-day RSA course and walk, work in a bar. Yep. Which are they going to choose? 
But how do you overcome that conundrum? Because the challenge you've got is that you need to have a minimum level of skill and understanding of the industry, and you also have to put in place certain requirements that enable you to... You're never going to be able to weed out everyone, but when you're looking at things like politically motivated violence, um, you know, criminal background checks, all sorts of things, there has to be a point at which you say, well, this may not be the most effective tool, but it is a tool that we can use to begin screening the pool. So let's move back to a few pieces. And I've been lucky enough over the years with my research to look at regulation and security regulation in different, indi- in different uh, countries. Yep. I have not seen a perfect model anywhere. Yep. It, it actually doesn't exist. The, the problem I believe we've got in Australia at the moment are two things. One, without a consistent federal regulation system, why do you need to be licensed in every state? It's, it's absolutely insane when a driver's license can be used across all the other states. Or in the modern world, you know, I'm getting technology from all around the world plugged into my device, mm. yet I'm crossing a fictional line and I need to have a different license process. It's quite insane. I think you've sold everyone on that. I don't think anyone <laughs> listening to this is going to disagree with you. So, so part of our challenge is we, instead of just complaining about it, we actually have to take action to do something about it. Yep. And while I don't necessarily have the exact answer with how that works, you know, I think ASIAL is starting to look at how that could start to manifest. Yeah. Maybe we need to get young Greta Thornburg out here to yell at COAG and tell them they're all doing the wrong thing. <laughs> well, it, it does also come down to the professionalism of our industry. Yep. Right, so if the lobbying of COAG was done successfully, we would have been on their agenda and we would have already transitioned to a federal system. Because we're not organised as an industry that effectively, you know, we've got information security, locksmiths, uh, consultants, security guarding groups, electronic security groups. If there was a cohesive voice, we're a very powerful sector. Yeah. Uh, but part of ASIL's mission that's come out of the strategy now is to try and harness that and build a more cohesive structure. Well, this harks back to the day, though, when we used to have to have, or when we had laws in various different states, like New South Wales, saying you had to be part of an approved industry organisation, of which there were 12 in New South Wales. And it's like, 12? Really? Seriously? Why do we need 12? I mean, I get that people have a need for choice, but at the same time, as you've put out an eloquent argument forward for, it doesn't help the industry in the long term, because... You know, you don't have 12 different organisations in addition to the Australian Medical Association. And you don't have 12 different organisations in addition to Engineers Australia and so on. I mean, again, there are going to be people listening to this who will be unhappy with this discussion. But the reality is there are something in the order of, according to the recent report put out by um, ASPE, around 120,000 employees in the security industry roughly at last count. That's a big voter base, and that's the only way you are going to get governments to give a crap. Well, take it even further. How many cybersecurity practitioners, if we add those to the list, or information security practitioners? So I I think there's harsh realities, and one of the challenges we've got is around if our mission is something, let's just call it something simple like national licensing. It's not about which association is bigger, better, stronger, it's about accepting the status quo that right now ASIL controls about 80% of the industry via its member base. Mm-hmm. It's smarter for us to be supporting that structure that's aligned to trying to help us get a, a possible outcome than it is to fight against it because it's not in anyone's interests. Yeah. And, and that's but one example. Yep. 
So, you know, some of the strategic priorities that have come out of the work we've been doing with AZL are things like trying to first and foremost do more research into the industry to actually understand what it is. Yep. And we actually have a study running at the moment on uh, workplace violence, duty of care, um, and mental health and how those intersect that AZL is supporting for us. And I'd urge you, please, if you were interested in that, the more people we get to take part in that research, the more accurate the research findings are going to be. Yep. So that's on the Australian Security Research Centre's website at the moment. Please have a look at that or get in touch with me and I'll share those details with you. The research part is important. If we don't understand what's going on, we can't action. But we, we know there's been pressing problems like licensing for, you know, let, let's call it at least a decade plus. Well, since 1989 when they first introduced it. So if, if we do that, there's three decades, right? Yeah. The only way we will tackle that is cohesion, yep. not separation. Yeah, so th things like that are non-competitive. Let's align. Let's get everybody together and let's support ASIEL to drive our message forward because look around the industry. They are probably the only body with the resources and capability to be able to do that. At this stage, yeah. At this stage. Yeah. And this is the stage we're at. Yep, absolutely. So, so you know, again, everybody having disparate messages but wanting the same thing doesn't help us. No. So, that, so that's the one part. I think that the next part too is around us owning the fact that it's our sector. Instead of blaming other people for procurement, poor security guards, not attracting the right people, we will attract the right people, I believe, if they see a valid career pathway and they see something that will be motivational and stimulating for them. Mm -hmm. Where are they going to see that picture if we don't show it to them? Yeah. So for, 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 I mean, having interviewed many security guards and crowd controllers over the years, you come across amazing people. It's not all sure they are the lowest common denominators. We get that. Well, they are and they aren't. I mean, there are some very, very intelligent people who work in the guarding side of the industry because they might be studying part-time or whatever they may be. I mean, let's not, and I'm not suggesting you are, but, uh, you know, this is one of the things I think the industry's got to stop doing. We've got to be so quick to throw that, that lower, wide base of the pyramid under the bus. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually going the other way. I'm yep. saying I've experienced meeting with some amazing people there yep. who are people that you sit and talk to them and they are so motivated by the mission. We did a review for Federal Human Services a while ago on the way they use security guards in Centrelinks. Mm. And I met security guards there that believe so much in protecting the people that work in that uh, environment, they put their lives on the line literally yeah. for the people they look after. And they don't do it for money because they're earning the same as everybody else. So we've got to start celebrating the successes of some of the people that work in the sector, not just complaining about the ones who are at the lower level and are not where we need them to be because I actually don't think that is reflective. That's the minority. I think the majority are actually competent, capable people that want to be recognised but they need a career path. What it, okay, so let me put to you a, a slightly controversial idea then. If we're trying to get government and community and the industry to see itself as more professional, what if we took that really wide base, that lower two-thirds of the pyramid that forms the security industry and rebranded it? And instead of calling them security, okay, so we are getting way off topic for this podcast, but you know, hey, you're, on for, you're in the car driving to work. You're in for the ride now. Come on, guys. Um, what if we rebranded them so that that top third, that professional aspect of the security industry was security? The people underneath that were still security, but they were customer service officers. 
because that is largely what they do. They provide customer service. They provide protective services. They, I mean, it's still security, a rose by any other name, let's be honest with you. But what we're doing is we're repositioning public perception so that we have security professionals and a professional security industry, much like you have the medical industry, but you have doctors and you have nurses. They're both highly qualified professionals. They're both great at what they do. But when people think of the medical industry, they think of doctors. When people think of the security industry, they think of security managers, risk managers, security professionals that are being supported by customer service officers. Interesting idea. Um we, we are going way off topic. Oh, yeah. We are so <laughs> far outside the... Uh, the um, t- anyway. Look, if, if you look at organizations in the US, like the International Foundation for Protection Officers, yep. you know, associations like that are trying to change the brand. Yep. I have a fundamental uh, problem with the, the notion of rebranding security officers, customer service officers, fundamentally because more and more they are the eyes and ears of an organization and arguably they are the eyes and ears that keep our community safe. Yep. It's not just the police that do it because they can't. Yep. We, you know, if, we, if we added up every police agency, there's double the security guards in the country. Yep. So actually they are the foundational aspect that for example, when it comes to counterterrorism, they are more likely to see something out of the ordinary and report it because their job is to look and observe. Yep. Uh, their job is to find things that are out of the ordinary and report it, if not act on it, depends on their, yep. their role. So I think part of the challenge actually comes back to reframing, not necessarily the branding of the security industry, it's educating the public and the users yep. around the importance of the role they perform. And it goes back to the previous argument or discussion point. That's really hard when, when they do their job, nothing goes wrong. Yep. We don't even think we need them anymore. Yep. It's really hard with a perception where we're going, you couldn't get another job, so you're a security officer. Mm. When in many cases, these people could have got plenty other jobs. They could have been in construction. They could have been driving an Uber or a cab. They had choices. It's not necessary that it was the lowest common denominator. I would say the majority of them are doing this because they like the idea of being a sheepdog. Yep. They like the idea. There's something inside them that says, I'm looking after something. Yep. And that motivates them. Yeah, I think we need to celebrate that aspect more. Uh, things, like, you know, things like launching you know, International Security Officers Day. We need to celebrate these people that arguably do a thankless job. Okay, and this is not just security guards, people in control and monitoring centers. You know, they sit there and look at screens, but they're the ones during an emergency or, or when something happens that our, our lives depend on. Yep. Uh, we need to look at the, the, the interconnection of things. You know, somebody who's coming to install your CCTV, why are you putting your CCTV up if they're not addressing a risk for you? Yeah. So I think a lot of that is around reframing. And my request to the industry, to those listening, is start by listening to the voice in your own head. When you want to rip our industry apart or you're feeling broken because people don't appreciate it, be proud of what we do. Because the reality is we are protecting Australia. You know, while we work a lot with law enforcement and you know, we, we work with defense, it's amazing. But if you look at the numbers, you add up defense, you add up pri- uh, law enforcement, there's still more private security officers. There's still more people in our sector. Yeah. But I think, and, and I keep coming back to ASIL as an example here, only because they're the largest peak body, so they're the easiest example to make. I think they are doing a lot of work in that area insofar as 
you used to have the um the ASIAL Awards for Excellence. That's now morphed into the Outstanding Performance Awards, which now also starting this year includes the uh, Australian Security Medals, which used to be a standalone thing, which recognise outstanding acts of valour for security officers, as well as contributions of people within the security industry who go above and beyond to contribute to the body of knowledge that is security. And you've now got ASIL bringing into the fold um, the movement you alluded to earlier, the International Security Officers Day, which was kicked off by George Chin and some other people a couple of years ago. So you you are seeing groups like ASIL starting to do a lot more to try and celebrate the industry for all of the good things that it does. But what we're not seeing is government understanding the value in the private security industry, perhaps in the way that we might like to. Which brings me to my next point. You're also doing some work in this area. Uh, we used to have the Security and Government Conference, which was a, a conference run for security agency or agency security officers and other people but that sort of went by the wayside a couple of years ago you've now picked up that mantle and run with it tell us a little bit about what you're doing in this space thanks john so a lot of our consulting business works closely with government and i think one of the challenges we've got and uh, i believe aspie's recently produced a paper highlighting that corporate security is national security and the two are much closer aligned. Yeah, I don't think it's actually hit the streets yet, but yes, they, they're working on it and it's about to come out. You know, so the reality is what keeps Australia safe is not national security alone, nor is it corporate security, nor, nor is it industrial or uh, retail security. It's the combination of all these variables that keep us safe and enable us to live a great life in Australia. Yep. So we were asked uh, by the Australian Security Research Centre who was asked by attorney generals to put on uh, an event last year where private security, uh, sorry, where the protective security and government conference was kind of reborn out of SIG, as you described, to talk about the great work that attorney generals has done in the protective security policy space and the PSPF reforms. So for those who don't know, many years ago, federal government used to work on something called the protective security manual, which was a process driven, really detailed approach to security. Around 2012, there was the Protective Security Policy Framework that was released, which is a framework that was supposed to be able to minimize the bureaucracy in the way federal government runs security. And it was the birth of things like the pillars of security, where we're talking about information security, personal security, physical security, and governance. Um, the reforms were an amazing step forward into where the world is moving, which is looking at things that are principles-based, so, for example, one of the principles of the Protective Security Policy Framework is that security is everyone's business and it enables the business of government. Without that understanding, this is another compliance piece that people don't value. Yep. So, in celebrating this move to a principles-based approach, which is also a risk-based approach, and for those who are not familiar with the jargon, the idea of risk-based is for me to understand where, where am I vulnerable, what's critical to me, and where are the threats likely to act? And when I combine all of that and I look at the likelihood of consequence and uh, impact manifesting, then I can actually go, right, where do I apply my limited resources to protect best? Because with limited resources, we've got to make decisions. And last, the last interesting piece is the idea of outcomes-based. You know, I, I might use a camera instead of a security guard, or I might use a fence um, or a beam instead of a patrol. Um, but am I achieving the same outcome? Great. So the idea of these principles, outcomes, risk-based 
aspects are really important. So uh, in, last year, I was the program convener for the Protective Security Government Conference, and it was amazing. Uh, we had a whole range of different experts, both private and government sector, come and present and share. And this year, at the end of the month, 28th of October, we've got it happening again. Um, we've got some really awesome pieces running. And as program convener, for me, my passion is around the education. There's, there's sort of three or four levels. The first one is uh, education. If we want our buyers of security and the advisors of security and the users of security to make good decisions around procurement and many other things, we've got to help share and educate what a good decision looks like and what's out there. Yeah. So that's the first part. The second part is we need to get cross-pollination of networking. So I urge you, particularly if you work in the private sector but you want to get into government and you need to understand how government works, come to the conference because you'll get to talk to people in government but you'll understand what their priorities are. And we've got you know, the CEO of ASIAL also presenting it at this event because it's important that government hears what private security is doing too, not just the one-way push. Yep. So it's focused a lot more, it's, it's more of a conference than it is an exhibition and it's focused on the education than the networking aspects but we've got some really cool things happening too, like we've got Dr. David Rubens who's the founder of the Institute for Strategic Risk Management um, coming through as a keynote speaker and running a workshop but we're also launching the Australian chapter of the Institute for Strategic Risk Management as well as part of the conference. Uh, we've got uh, Richard Boyce coming over from New Zealand. Richard is the security manager for the region where the Christchurch attack took place. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and he's going to be sharing from his perspective the reality versus the perception. Yep. Um, so we've, that's just a snapshot of two of the speakers. We've got Helen Daniels, who's the chief security officer and chief operating officer from Attorney General's, opening the event for us. So while I realize it's not always easy for people who are not in Canberra to come down to Canberra, if you were going to make the trip because you want to understand what government is doing, this is probably the way to do it in a short, effective structure. We're also looking to bridge the gap. So, for example, we've got John Brennan, who's the chief risk officer for VMI, the Victoria Managed Insurance Agency, coming to present a session on the chief risk officer's view on security yep. risk. So I think part of the challenge is that we just don't get that much cross-pollination between the sectors. But if I'm looking at this purely from a security manager's point of view, if, I, if I'm the security manager at John Bigelow Bank, wouldn't that be nice? Um, then why do I care? Why do I care what government's doing and what they think? So I think there's a few pieces that are really important. First and foremost... Uh, as, as a 20-year security risk management advisor and consultant, there's some really good things coming out of federal government that we can learn from. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that, that's not relevant just to federal government. I've got people presenting from state government departments as well on great initiatives that they're launching. We tend to think government doesn't actually produce good outputs. It, it's, it's another fallacy to overcome. You know, in many cases, they have no choice but to look at the most effective solutions, and they're often better resourced than private sector. So there's a lot of learnings that could come from there. But the second piece is if you're a security manager from John Bigelow Bank, yep. yeah, banking's, banking's going through a lot of changes, I'm sorry for you. Yeah, we, we managed to avoid the Royal Commission, it's okay. <laughs> um, the, then coming to, exp to share what you do, Okay, with government, if you've got something that's amazing, is also equally as important. If you don't come and talk to them and go, you know, over coffee, do you know what we've done with our guarding program? 
you, you could have a really positive impact on them. Yeah. And then the last part is a lot of what we're doing is simply best practice. So it's a chance to get education in a very short period of time, you know, two or three days, that's not easy to come by. Yeah, okay. And, we've, and, and uh, I think the other part is that, uh, that looking at how last year ran, I'm sure this year will be the same if not better, we had an amazing uh, feeling of collegiate collaboration. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of sharing. Yep. And if we really want to look at how do we keep Australia safe, which is probably the primary outcome from the strategic work we've been doing with Australia, I'm sorry, with ASIAL. Yep. You know, we, we only exist as an industry in terms of security to protect. Yep. We need to understand how to do this cohesively and more effectively. And we're not going to do that by constantly subdividing and going, that's local government, that's state government, that's retail, that's aviation, that's passenger transport. So the more we're all working together on the same page, and in essence, we actually are facing many of the same problems. Yep. Again, coming back to the, the earlier point, though, as the security manager within a larger organisation, warm and fuzzy is great, but if I'm going to spend X amount to send some of my team along to a conference, I want to know what are the tangible benefits that I'm going to get as a result of doing that. So walk me through that. Sure. So I think some of the pieces I mentioned before, like David Rubens has never presented in Australia before. Yep. So having Jason come out, I'm sorry, I mean David come out and share some of that will be Let's really... Let's talk about Jason. Jason turns up to everything. Yeah. So we'll yep. have, we'll have, we have Jason there too. Yep. Talis yep. is a sponsor. That's very yep. nice of them. Um, but coming to hear from David, who's... PhD research was on around high reliability and private security. Yep. You know, it's is, is an interesting opportunity. The, I think the key tangibles, if, if I want to know why do I send my people to that event, yep. uh, I'm pretty confident because I've built the program. Yep. There's a real collection of experts that are looking at physical security, slightly less on the physical security side because ASIL's conference covers a lot of that. Mm-hmm. But looking at the people side, looking at the information security side, looking at the governance side and how these aspects merge and looking at what different perspectives there are on these things, which is something we just don't normally get a chance to explore. If you send someone on a training course, the training course is focused on competency outcomes. Yep. And what we want to do is we want to tackle problems that organizations are dealing with now. And that's probably the key takeaway we've, we've got people coming from a lot of engineering firms. We've got people coming from physical security providers as well who are wanting to look at going, how do I actually expand my messaging, for example, so that I can achieve um, take up within the, the government sector? We, we know for a lot of clients in the, pri- oh, sorry, providers in the private security world, they want government contracts because at least they know they're probably going to get paid. Yeah. But if we're not solving government's problems because we don't even know what they are, how are we going to do it? And if we're waiting for the tenders to come out, yep. how do we know those tenders have even been scoped properly? Sure. And uh, yeah. So if I want to know more about the conference or I'm, I'm looking at sending people along to attend, where do I go? Where do I find more information? Easy, easiest thing is psgconference.com, yep. which has got everything on it. And uh, we've tried to make it really flexible. So people could just come to the ISRM launch dinner or they could come to one day of the conference or two days or three days and do the workshop and put it all together. So, you know, from a networking perspective, uh, I, I think part of the challenge with a lot of the events that are out there is they often are very big. Uh, we consider this a slightly more boutique event. We'll have between 100 and 200 people there at most. And it's a chance to really do a deep dive into what's working and what's not. And, you know, if, if a lot of the listeners, uh, I, I, while I think a lot of the listeners are, might be focused more on the private security angle, 
the intersection between the way private and local government, state government and federal government work is the reality of the world we live in. Gav, fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. If people want to find out more information about you or your book, you've got a book out. So if people want to find out more about either of those two things, where do they go? Sure. So uh, book's available anywhere. Uh, Amazon. Uh, and, the na- and the name of the book the is? The book is called Can I See Your Hands? A Guide to uh, Security, Personal Safety and Resilience. Fantastic. Uh, we've recently uh, launched the audio book. Really? For people like me who can't read. Great. And uh, we've also done an updated version of the book. So the updated version of the book was uh, relaunched about six months ago. And there were a few pieces in in the rush to get the first version out. um, There were some typos and a few things that really annoyed me. But we've also expanded some of it now. We've introduced the concept of presilience. Okay, as opposed to resilience, which I believe is one of the fundamental things the security industry is designed to do, yep. which is prevent and prepare, not mm-hmm. just the response and recovery. And we've put a little bit more of the psychology of risk concept into the book. Um, so, yeah, have a look at Amazon. It's available on Universal Publishers, the publisher out of the US's website. And uh, the Amazon book is currently really well priced. So, uh, even from an Australian perspective, where the dollar isn't as strong as the US, it's, it's still a good buy. Yep. Please give it a good review if you do land up buying it. Um, <laughs> and in terms of us, uh, risktosolution.com yep. is where most of our information is at. And if you're interested in some of the, the, the training products we've got out there and you've got a few minutes that you want to do a quick education program about something like general safety and security awareness or stress and resilience, we've got our online academy, which is r2s.academy. Fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us for this podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, don't forget, there's more podcasts like this available through iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other good podcast places. Just look for ASIAL Security Insider Podcast. And until next time, we look forward to being with you then. Thank you. Thank you.